This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith. I'll be your host today, and joining me is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. How you doing, Will? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. We're jumping into what is going to seem like part four to to the listeners, maybe. <laughs> we have been uh, hodgepodging some episodes together from the past. We had a tribute episode to our brother Mark, which brought in kind of the history of of Isaiah 7 and the passage where it's predicted that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin and be called Emmanuel. Last week, we took a look at the birth of John, which people just kind of divorce a little bit from the Christmas story, but it's really essential because he is the the prelude to the coming king. So all of this is going to be necessary. And oh, by the way, remember John is the fulfillment of Malachi's promise that Elijah would have to come before the Messiah. So all of that was building toward this king that is going to be born. And today we get to the actual episode where Jesus is born. And we're going to weave together uh, two different gospels. One is the gospel of Matthew, which gives us a little bit of one perspective. And then Luke gives us more of the play-by-play of the actual birth story. Is this Was it surprising to you to read the different gospels and see what was in some and not in others and yeah, and just how much, like how many words some of some of the things get, and how many some don't. Because right, we'll talk. We were talking about this before, but Joseph, as the father of Jesus, is just going to get a couple of verses. But then, like last episode, like Zechariah and John the Baptist, these forgotten yeah. parts of the tale that we just kind of divorced from it all. Mm-hmm. Just tons huge. of it. Yeah, just huge space on the page. Yeah, when you go into Luke's gospel, he does not mention Joseph much at all. In fact, it just tells you, you know, that she was betrothed to Joseph and then moves on. You have to go over to the gospel of Matthew to really dive in and to hear all the back and forth about how this was really difficult for him. And so that's where we're going to start today because all this comes together. You know, ultimately all of this is authored by the Holy Spirit. And so he's telling a story through the four different Gospels to give us a picture of the whole. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, right after the genealogy, which could be interesting to do a standalone episode on. We, we may come back to that, maybe. But today we're going to start at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So so now we, we pick up and we go back a few episodes where Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you are going to be with child. It's, you're going to be, you know, the shadow of the most high is going to come upon you and you're going to conceive. And they have a conversation about how that's possible because I'm a virgin. So all of that has happened. And now all of a sudden she's with child from the Holy Spirit and Back in, in first century Israel, when you were betrothed, it, you were already married. So like today, when we get engaged in our day and age, you can still break it off. It's, it's not binding. It's not covenant. But back then, when you were betrothed, I mean, it was already a binding contract. You belonged to your wife. You belonged to your future husband. 
and you were you were expected to remain faithful in all ways, especially sexually up until then. In fact, it was considered adultery to break your betrothal. And that came with the death penalty, according to the law of Moses. So there's a lot on the line right now. Yeah, betrothal's like a more serious engagement than we would give it, right? Oh, for definitely. And at this point in a betrothal, these two, you know, there's not much love between Joseph and Mary yet, right? Yeah, there might have been, there but, might but have this been, is going to be an arranged marriage. Okay. You know, this is this is something where her father and his father come together. They arranged, you know, this is, we think that they're going to be good for one another. There's an exchange of a dowry. Uh, and then you have this arranged marriage that then has this waiting period where the husband is then expected to go and to prepare a place for his bride and and get everything ready. And then on the wedding day, you have the big feast. And then she officially comes in to live and, and they consummate the marriage and all that kind of stuff. But now she's pregnant and that wedding day has not come on. And so anybody with any sense immediately assumes she's an adulteress. Like she's she's fooling around. She's violated her covenant. She is a, a scandalous woman. And by the way, she knew all this was coming when she said to God, may it be done unto me. Hmm. Like I, I'll take all of that for the sake of bringing the Savior into the world. And in verse 19, it says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So that label when it says that he's a just man, it's it's also you know a righteous man, an upright man. There's only one other person outside of Jesus in the Gospels that gets that label, and it's going to be Joseph of Arimathea who gives Jesus his tomb later on. And so hold on to that little nugget of information. That'll be important later. But here you have the husband Joseph, and he's looking, he's been humiliated uh, publicly, you know, here's your wife. Oh, Joseph, isn't that your, oh my goodness. Look at, look, look at that, you know, and he's humiliated and yet he does not want her to be punished. He just wants to divorce her quietly to, to show mercy on her. But at the same point, like he's, he's willing to walk away from her, you know? So imagine being Mary in this situation, like you're going to be publicly shamed. Your parents, you're, you're betrothed. You're all down the line. She is being left alone, seemingly. But verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That name Yeshua, that's actually what it means, Yahweh saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, we've already touched on. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so there you get a picture of not only is she walking around with the shame, right? This incredible woman of faith, this teenager of faith who's like, you know, be it done unto me. I'll take the shame for the sake of bringing salvation to the world, of, of seeing your covenant come true to this world 
But now you see Joseph who's like, okay, I'll share in that shame. Because to remain married to her would now, that shame would bleed over on him, right? And it's not just... It's not just the willingness to take the shame, but look at look at what he does. Even though she's already pregnant, you know, he's he's willing to remain chaste. He stays faithful to the Lord and his promises to the Lord at the betrothal, and they do not have sex again until Jesus is born. He still honors the betrothal. And so you see in these two people, Mary, somebody that when she sings, you know, the Psalms just belt out of her mouth. You know, she's this medley of Psalms in the Magnificat. She loves the Lord. She loves his word. She's willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And you see the same character here in Joseph. And so in these two people, they may not have much else, you know, but they have incredible faith and they're upright people in the sight of the Lord, and that is pretty much the only privilege that God is going to give his son, mm. his great parents. And it's really gracious of God to come to this moment to Joseph, right? Because it is a real lose-lose situation for old Joseph here, mm-hmm. right? Either he's walking around with shame, he's getting shame no matter what, and you can just imagine the difficulty in that decision to make, because like it's, man, I kind of believe her, <laughs> but then I don't. And just kind of being torn in here, God says, no, no, I'm going to handle this for you, Joseph. Mm -hmm. Like you're still, like you said, you're still going to have to go through with all of this and live through the burden of this in a sense. Um, But I want to make sure at least your heart is clear in all of this, which is really nice of him. Yeah, it's totally tender. I mean, to enable him to participate in the salvation of the world, like, you know, you're you're not the dad, you're not the biological father of the savior of the world, God become flesh. But I'm trusting. Imagine God coming to you and saying, I'm going to trust you with my son. Wild. Like, do you know the weight that you feel with your own kid? You know, the you, you, you want to protect them. You want to save them. And I mean, ultimately, if you're Joseph, you have to know, like, God's got this. Like, he's not going to yeah, let in things a sense, go. You're like, he's going to let him. But at the same him. time, like in the day-to-day stuff, you're like, the pressure had to have been crushing. That's maybe that's why Joseph dies an early death. Everyone thinks like <laughs> this would have been high stress. And Managing do, all this mixed family kind of because then there's now brothers and stepbrothers that aren't perfect. Yeah. And I'm sure that was tough. Yeah. I wonder how they explain this because Jesus is going to have siblings that come come after this. And how do you how do you talk about that? I I don't know. He's. He's adopted, kids. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, do they know? Do they? Because they seem surprised when Jesus later on is doing his ministry. They're like, oh, he's crazy. But Mary did that too, and she knew. Yeah. I so, guess living 30 years, you kind of get like, yeah. I mean, if you really never met, like, we all mess up at home the most, probably. Yeah. Right? Would you agree? Like, yeah, that's for the sure. Part where we put down a lot of yeah. regard and our Take family the mask off. the worst of it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you're looking around and Jesus isn't doing that. <laughs> yeah, that would be real. Can you imagine being the kid who's walking in Jesus's shadow, like the number two son of this family? I mean, it took his James a little while, but he came around, right? Yeah, but totally. He becomes the bishop of, of Jerusalem. Yeah, he's it's a big deal. He becomes a big deal. Can you imagine that lecture? Jesus never leaves his clothes on the floor. Yeah, that would be a hard one to follow. <laughs> yeah, that would, it would be. So you have all of this coming in this story, and you get introduced to Joseph and Mary and really, really wonderful people. And those names hold on to all of these details because the whole point of why Jesus comes into the world that we talked about in our very first 
episode on the Christmas story, he comes into the world to die. When you jump over to the gospel of Luke, now all of a sudden, the imagery that jumps from the page, like when you hear it or when you see it, you can't unsee it. And it is God who is preaching a message from the birth of our Savior that is tremendously profound and unbelievably beautiful. And you will never imagine the nativity the same way if you've never heard this before. So hang with us. So now we're in in chapter two of Luke, and now it's go time. You know, Mary is nine months pregnant. All of this has happened. And it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So pause here. Why? Like, what is he up to? Why would, why would Caesar need to have a registry? I have no idea. So that's where you have to determine, okay, where do I need to position infrastructure? Where do I need to position governors and everything else? But even more important than that, I want to know how many people are associated with each region so I can determine how much they are taxed. Hmm. And so right out of the gates, what's what's the whole mission of the Messiah? According to all the Old Testament, according to all of he's coming to deliver us from oppression. And a lot of the early church, a lot of the, the first century Jewish mindset was that the Messiah would come to overthrow the oppression of Rome. And so the very reason why Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem is because of Roman oppression. And this is a reminder of it. Because remember, Joseph and Mary, they live up in Nazareth. That's up near Galilee. It's it's like due west of the Sea of Galilee. And so this here you have Augustus, who's calling for a census, and now they have to get on their animals and go with other people and travel all the way down to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph comes from the family line of David. If you trace his line, he's in the, the house of Judah, and if you walk your way up, you, you ultimately get to, to, to David. But the controversial question about that people always ask that I don't really answer well is how does Joseph's lineage have anything to do with Jesus? So you still, it's the inheritance, right? It's the birthright. So if he may not be biologically related to Joseph, but it's the same way that the family of God is not about DNA or bloodline anyway. It's about faith. And so the promise, he is still the firstborn son of Joseph, right? Okay. It's, it's like the same kind of an idea you find in the genealogy of Jesus when, when it says, um, you know how you have leveret marriage in the Bible? I do. And so you have, like, for example, Everett is like, if your first husband dies, it's the responsibility of the closest relative to then give the woman a son and to take her in and take care of her in the ancient world. So you see that with Ruth, right? So Ruth's husband dies, and Boaz is the one who steps up as Leverett marriage, but it's actually continuing along the line of her first husband. That's the, the Leverett idea. And so the, the lineage carries on, and in this case— Jesus is going to be entitled to all the rights of Joseph as the firstborn, even though he's not biologically related. Okay, so that makes sense. So legally, Joseph's first heir was Jesus. Correct. Okay. Even if it's not biologically. That makes sense. So they're on their, their, let's say, donkey. We know that they mounted an animal. Then they're on their way down, whatever, 70, 80 miles from Nazareth to get to Bethlehem. And it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, which is kind of a little interesting historical nugget, but we do know that this was a real person. We find it 
and other writings. This is the same governor that is going to appoint Annas to become the high priest. That's Caiaphas' father-in-law, Caiaphas being the high priest who demands Jesus to be crucified. Um, but that family comes into the high priest role when Quirinius appoints Annas to be the high priest. So we know this guy from other sources. He's legit of the time period. A lot of people used to think they're just making up names. No, we know from historical <laughs> records these are the right people in the right places. So, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be married to Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So I want to pause there and just let's talk about why it's significant that we're going to Bethlehem. The first obvious answer is, who else comes from Bethlehem? David. David. He's, so he's found he's a shepherd boy out in the fields of, of Bethlehem. And when he's discovered, he is going to become the great king. And all of the prophecies after that talk about how the Messiah is going to carry on from the throne of David, from the house of David. It's all about David. And so now here you have literally the Messiah that's going to be born in the same little podunk village where David was born. The good shepherd will be born in Bethlehem where David the shepherd boy was born. But even bigger than that, like one of the things that is really fascinating, David's a shepherd boy and Bethlehem is always associated with shepherds, shepherds' fields, everything like that. And it's seven miles south of Jerusalem. And so what would happen is you would have all of these shepherds that would come there and they would raise up these flocks and those flocks would then be an easy seven mile walk north to Jerusalem where people would be buying them to sacrifice them at the temple. And so huge industry for shepherds that's going on in Bethlehem. This is a place for shepherds. This is where all the animals are being raised up that are going to be slaughtered for the, the symbolic atonement of sin in Jerusalem. So why is it really, really fascinating that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Because he's going to be the lamb that's actually slaughtered. Because he's going to be the lamb of God. And so when he's born, where is he born? Spoiler alert, where is he going to be born? Gee, there's no room in the in the inn, so we have to go to a stable. A stable. Well, what else is in that stable? Other animals. All these animals. All these animals are destined for the slaughter. They're all going to be sacrificed and so it's not it's a it's like god's divine poetry that he's telling the story in a way that not only puts jesus in the place and the city of david this this town where david comes from but jesus is going to be born not among princes not among kings not among the high priest he's born among the very animals that are destined for slaughter and god is saying to you this is your purpose this this is his purpose this is why he is going this is the, the reason he's born is to die. And so now I want to pause here for just a moment. And, you know, when we know that Jesus is supposed to be born in Bethlehem because of a prophecy that's found in Micah. And so if you have your Bibles, it's actually helpful to follow along with us with your Bibles open. Jump open to Michael, Michael, jump to Micah chapter four. So Micah's, Micah's giving a promise of, of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes to redeem Israel, right? And so listen, because, I mean, it's describing Jesus. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, this is Micah 4, 6, I will assemble the lame. Who are God's people? 
The lame. The lame, the broken, the people who recognize that they're, they're injured, there's something off, there's something wrong. He says, I will assemble the lame and I will gather those who have been driven away because God's people are going to be driven into exile and those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make a remnant. That's his people. And those who were cast off, I will make them a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And then listen to this. He says, and you, O tower of the flock. And in Hebrew, it's migdal adair. Those are the two words. Towers, migdal adair is of the flock. And it's actually a physical location that is in Bethlehem. And so here's, here's what you'd have. You'd have a tower, and the shepherd would go up into the tower, and he would be able, because you had these huge shepherd fields, he would be able to look for thieves, and he would be able to make sure that there were no predators coming. And he would literally go up into the tower, and he would keep watch at night and during the day to make sure that the flocks were safe. So listen here. In Bethlehem, you have the watchtower of the flock, the hill of our daughter Zion, the daughter of Zion. To you it shall come. Wait a minute. He's talking about a shepherd's field in Bethlehem, and he's talking about a king that's going to come and gather up the lame and the broken. And he says to you, and we're going to hear him call out Bethlehem specifically in a little bit, but he's like, to you it shall come. You're the one who's going to receive the Messiah. The former dominion, the kingdom is going to be restored, the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And then listen to what he says. He says, so why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Can you think of some of the titles that Jesus is going to take? King, counselor. And then he says this, as your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor, writhe and groan. So now all of a sudden it's associated with childbirth. Writhe and groan, daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon and there you shall be rescued. Remember when we talked about the song of Moses? Where were God's people rescued out of? Babylon. Babylon, come out of her, my people. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now I just I just want to fast forward because the rest of it's great, but just for the sake of time, jump to the next chapter, chapter five. Here's the announcement of the messianic birthplace. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, like you're you're nothing special, like you're you are not among the leaders of this clan. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth. Hear this, because there's I don't know how else you explain this. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, I if you're if you're Jewish and you're listening to this and you don't believe that God becomes a man, what do you do with this passage? What do you do with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where it says the everlasting father is going to be born? You just a don't child. bring it up a lot. <laughs> you, you definitely don't bring it up. But when it says from ancient days, it's, it could literally be translated from everlasting. So here you have one that is going to be born. It's coming forth, but his origins are everlasting. This is God that's going to be born, who's going to be the king. And where is he going to be born? He's going to be born in the sight of those that are keeping watch in the shepherd's fields of Bethlehem. And Micah has told you this hundreds of years before Jesus is born. 
That's why when the wise men, we'll get to this in, a, in, a, in our next episode maybe, that's why when the wise men show up to Herod, he's, they're like, we know the king of the Jews has been born, and all the religious leaders who've studied this stuff for years and years and years say, oh, Bethlehem, of course, he's right there. Seven miles, due south, go on. Well, this is it. This is the moment. And so now you have Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, and it says in verse 6, and we're back in Luke chapter 2, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. Yeah, and also Bethlehem, other than all the fascinating things we've already said, it is interesting that Bethlehem does mean house of bread. Yeah, you got to spit more. Bethlehem. Lehem. Lehem. <laughs> and being the house of bread, that's fascinating that our Savior then comes, you know, later as he's feeding 10,000. Mm-hmm. And saying, I am the bread of life. That's like, right. Out of the house of bread came the true one that sustains us. Yeah. And what's cool about that is, you know, we just, we just read, he's okay. He's born. He's wrapped up in swaddling cloths. There's no, there's no crib for him. So he's laid into a manger. And I, when I was growing up, I never knew what a manger was. I just assumed it was a thing that you laid babies in. Cause I don't, I don't, I've never lived on a farm or whatever, but a manger is a feeding trough. Yeah. Did you have you always known that? Yeah, I mean I I had parents, I guess. Just kidding. <laughs> I, I, was, I was raised up in a house. No offense, this. Mr. Cashman. No. <laughs> if you listen to this, sorry. Yeah, way to go, Dad. Yeah, I can pretty sure he wasn't. He's not listening, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but anyway, well, so think about that. He's born in a city that's called the House of Bread. And he's laid in a feeding trough. And who feeds from the feeding trough? The animals. The flock, right? Which is what he's going to refer to us. And and he's going to go on in his ministry. And, and the night before he's betrayed, what does he say? This is my body, speaking of the bread. This is my blood, speaking of the wine. And he, he invites us to, to consume him, to satisfy our souls, to like Psalm 34 says, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And all of this, by the way, is fulfilling another prophecy that you find in Amos chapter 8, where Amos says, behold, the days are coming where, where I'm going to send a famine, not a famine of bread, not a famine of water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And so when John introduces you to Jesus, he, you, know, you, you don't get the big nativity story in John. You know what he says? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and later on he'll say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if there's a famine of the word, and Jesus is born into the world as the word of God, and he's laid into a feeding trough, it's like God is saying, this famine that has plagued my people and, and, and hit this world that where people are looking for something beyond the physical that to satisfy them, and they can't find it, this famine, when he puts sovereignly has Jesus placed into a manger in the house of bread, you could just see the artistic, beautiful sovereignty of God declaring to humanity, feast. Here he is, the one who's going to satisfy all of your hungers. One of those things that I never knew until I went to Israel on that trip is when you're in Megiddo, um, which is one of the sites, you just see these stone mangers everywhere. Because mm-hmm. like when I, just like every nativity scene ever, it looks like wood with some hay. Yep. And that's what it is. It's like the crisscross little yeah, yeah, basket. Of course, yeah. No, it's that's not what would have been. And you go to Israel and you don't see any trees. So you're like, where, where are they getting all this wood from? <laughs> well, they're not. Everything's stone. Mm-hmm. 
which if you want to see this, you can just Google stone manger in Megiddo on Google and it pops right up and it's really fascinating because it's just a stone box. Mm-hmm. But you could totally look at this. I mean, it's, I don't know, maybe two and a half or three foot long and maybe two foot wide, but the top of it's hewn out. You know, it's like a little basin in this thing. And you can just imagine it would be perfect to set a baby in. You know, I mean, well, not perfect. I mean, you don't want to set a, a baby in a limestone. If you have to. <laughs> yeah, you'd want to cushion it, whatever. It was the best they had. Correct, correct. You know, but think about this. God, out of the gates, is so stripping away all of the little privileges of Jesus that even as a baby, he gets a stone crib. You're like, yeah, there's just no privilege. He's not born to wealth. The only, like really the only kindness and human perspective that God gives to him as he's born to parents who love the Lord. Outside of that, he does not have the privileges of wealth or status or even the location that he lives. Like all of it is, is really not his. He's going to grow up with people calling you know, his mom, bad words and believing that he was born out of wedlock and considering him a bastard and his family shamed and all of these things. Like he comes into the world with so many things stacked against him. And yet God is sovereignly and against the backdrop of all that darkness, God paints a picture that's pretty phenomenal. So I want you to imagine, it says, he, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the end. And we're going to hold on to that thought and hold on to that image because it's going to become really significant when God is talking to the shepherds here in a minute, okay? So verse eight, all that's going on. You got to imagine, imagine what would it have been like for Mary and Joseph to be holding their hope of heaven? Like, and not just their hope of heaven, the hope for Abraham. Like in their hands, they're holding the salvation of Moses. They're holding the salvation of every person of faith that's ever come before them, that will ever come after them, the hope of the world in their arms, and they have to take care of this baby. Like, I, you know, when, when Caleb was born, I got emotional because it was like, how can you trust me with a life? It was like this overwhelming, sobering moment of this is an eternal responsibility. Like his soul is going to go on to live somewhere forever. And God, you're trusting me to help shape this life. It's by your power and and ultimately your salvation, but you're trusting me to help shape him. And it was like this overwhelming hit me all at once moment and i just got like i can't do this god help me did you have that moment yeah when we got home the first night <laughs> yeah, i think good. when it first happened you're like oh look at all these nurses so fun <laughs> then all of a sudden morgan and I are at home looking at each other and when everyone else leaves you're like oh they didn't take Everett." yeah that was a different drive she's home. ours <laughs> yeah <laughs> that drive home was wild like yeah you can't trust me to drive with this baby in the car like no, yeah i was on the highway coming back from boca <laughs> it's pouring rain i'm like yeah both white hands. knuckle yeah. in it yeah because it the response just imagine what that would have been like for mary and joseph just is stunning anyway verse eight and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Well, of course there were, because this is Migdola Deer in Bethlehem. It's the shepherd's field. You know, this is, this is what Micah was talking about. These are the shepherds that were keeping watch over the flock by night. Well, here we are. And an angel. So by the way, what that's also telling you is this baby that's born is the one who is given whose origins are from everlasting. That's not, that's not a, a three-minute-old baby, <laughs> you know. That is a, an everlasting God who's taken flesh 
that's now resting <laughs> across the field. And so it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds who were keeping watch, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. This is the word for gospel. It's evangelion. It's, this is awesome. When, when Caesar Augustus, which is how we started this chapter, began the census, there was a good news edict that was sent out all over the Roman world that says a new king has come and he's established for your salvation. And that, that, that expression was very familiar to the people back in the time. And now you have the angels of heaven saying, Psh, you know, <laughs> Caesar Augustus, Evangelion, get rid of it. That's garbage. From heaven now, I'm bringing you news of a greater king and a greater kingdom. I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just Roman citizens. Every nation under heaven is now sharing under the good news of this Savior that's been born. And then he quotes, like the language is drawing your mind to the famous passage in Isaiah 9-6. He says, for unto you is born this day. Well, that, that draws our mind to Isaiah 9, 6, where it's for unto you what? A child is born, a son is given, and it gives them all the names, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace. I'm, I mixed them all up, but you, you get the idea. All that's in there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ. That's the word for Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, which I find like this, this angel actually has some humor to him. Like, because I want you to imagine if you're an, if you're a shepherd, you're out in the field and an angel of the Lord appears to them. And it says the glory of the Lord shown all around them. And then the angel says, this will be a sign for you. Like you, you've gotten your sign. <laughs> do you, do you need another one? Like if, if, if an angel with the glory of God is shining, that's your sign. Like yeah, you, you shouldn't need much, much trust else. Anything, yeah. But then it seems like a, like you're, it's a step down. Like if I'm looking at an angel who is glowing with the glory of God, and he says, "Have I got a sign for you?" In your mind, you're going to be thinking, "What could top this?" Mm. Like I am looking at the bright, blinding, terrifying glory of God that has put me on my knees to where this angel has to say, "No, no, no! Don't fear! Don't be afraid! Don't be terrified!" But I've got a better sign for you. What, what is this going to be? And then it sounds kind of like a disappointment. Let's just be honest. Yeah. He says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay. And that's, what else? <laughs> right. Like I'm, I'm looking at the glory of God. What? So there must be something that's really pretty amazing about a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And there is. So all of these Old Testament prophecies that are converging at this moment, you know, Isaiah 9, 6, and the virgin with child, and he's called Emmanuel, and his, his, you know, his origins are from everlasting, and all of this are coupled with the fact that when these prophets describe what the Messiah is going to be like, he's a Messiah that's coming to die. He's a Messiah that's coming to carry our iniquities. He's a Messiah that's coming to be punished for us, whose hands and feet are going to be pierced, who's going to be poured out, who's not going to have any children. He's going to be cut off before the, the full maturity of his days. He's going to die, and he's going to die for us. And so when 
the angel says, this is going to be a sign for you. Go look for a stable and you're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. This is what we read right past. They go into Bethlehem. And if you've ever been on a trip to Israel and you've gone to the, the shepherd's fields, you see these little caves that are all around, that are hollowed out, because back then they didn't build big barns like we imagine. They would put the flocks in these caves during rainstorms, and they would try to get as many of them into these caves for as, as stables at night. And so this stable is actually hewn out of the limestone cliffs that, that surround Bethlehem. So it's a cave. And then you go in and you look and it's, you know, what Will was talking about a moment ago, these limestone mangers, these stone beds where the, the tops of them are hewn out and inside this hewn out stone bed is a baby that, that is wrapped up in strips of cloth. What's that look like? A body. Yeah. And, and that, that's, unmistakably that's a that's a mummy you know they even in israel you mummified you mummified the the dead they were wrapped up when jesus is is dead he will be wrapped up and so what does this look like you have a body that is all covered with blood and amniotic fluid mess that is in a cave on a stone bed wrapped up in cloths and it's Mary and Joseph are there with him. And you think, and this is, this is his new birth. Hmm. Well, let's fast forward because we told you what the whole reason why Jesus is born. This is not some like, oh, hooray, a baby. Like he's on a mission to die for us. And so how does God introduce him into this world is the same way he's going to look when he is taken down from the cross and laid into another cave a tomb that was purchased by the only other person in all of scripture that's described in the same way as this Joseph. It's another Joseph and he too is righteous and just. And it's a tomb that has never had another body laying inside of it, which is important because in the ancient world, they would wait for your body to decompose, come grab your bones, put them in an ossuary box and then reuse the tomb. But this is a tomb that no other man has been in. It's a virgin tomb. And so they take his body, his bloodied body with all the wounds and, and blood and everything else on it, and they wrap him up in strips, and they wrap him with myrrh. Hmm, that's going to be coming. And they place his body on the stone beds that you used to find in these, in these tombs, and that's what you would find. And it's, it's the house, it's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and three days later, when this dead body miraculously for the second time comes to life in a way that makes no sense of biology. You remember Mary being like, he can't be alive in me because I'm a virgin. And God says, you don't understand who I am. I can bring life wherever I want to bring life. Well, you fast forward 33 years. Jesus is once again going to be covered in blood, wrapped up in strips, laid on a stone bed inside a cave. And when he comes to new life, for the second time here in a human body, who is it that discovers him? Mary Magdalene. 
And so God is sovereignly painting the story, not just of Jesus's death and his burial, but more importantly, he's painting the precursor, this, this, this nod toward the resurrection, because all of Jesus's ministry is pointing toward the importance, not of his first birth, but of his second, where he defeats the womb of the earth, where he destroys death in the grave, and he comes forth emerging victorious. And all of this is wonderful. Now that, if you're the shepherds and, and, <laughs> and you really understand that the Messiah has been born to die and you find this Messiah and he's, he looks like a corpse, imagine the gravity. If you, if you put all that together, imagine the gravity of, of saying, man, the God of the universe is coming to die. For us, and here he is, God in the flesh, announcing before he can even speak, before he can even reason and understand all this, the Father has put him on this stone bed to say, here is the gift that I'm giving, the most costly gift that will ever be. And just like every other part of the story, he comes to the most unimaginably undeserving people, these shepherds. You know a thing or like what were shepherds like in the ancient world? Not as romantic as we like to make them now. No, because right, they were outcasts. They were a lot of times criminals, right? Yeah, they were known to be criminals. They were grifters. They wandered through people's territory. Things would go missing all the times because they would just follow their flocks. So they were known to be criminal. They were just. A, I mean, there's different professions out there that's like, oh, a wheeler and dealer who will hustle me or whatever. They like track different personalities. There you go. So shepherds, they're, they don't do community well. They kind of, they're on their own. They, they, they're with animals. They don't want to be with people. Um, and they, they weren't, weren't allowed into a lot of life because when they've been dirty all the time, correct. Like legitimately, like you can't go into the temple. You can't live life like everyone else does without the ceremonial cleansing all the time. And I'm sure after a while as a shepherd, you're like, well, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, I'm out. Like it's not worth it to me to have to go through all of these things every single moment of every single day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there weren't many professions where you were precluded from testifying in court. If you were a shepherd, your testimony was not accepted in a court of law. That's how that's how shunned they were deemed in society. And God's like, oh, who should I? Who should be the first witnesses of this? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that's just his nature. That's his character. He comes for these kinds of people. The ones who can't worship, the ones who are shunned by everybody, like the ones who not much good news comes to them. Yeah. And imagine seeing with your own eyes the demonstration of God poetically making it so that like, I'm going to die for you. Hmm. That's the first thing they see. And so it's like, okay, there's going to be this sign. What is that? And it says, and suddenly, while they're hearing there's going to be this sign, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's a pretty cool, good sign, but that's still not the sign, you know? That would be really cool to be able to see a choir of angels singing that. Like, well, I wonder what angels sound like. I bet, they're, I bet they're pretty impressive. But anyway, God is coming to broker peace with those with whom he is pleased. And I want you to, to pause for a moment there because that means the natural state of the world and God without Jesus is not peace. It's war. Hmm. 
We have rebelled. We have taken a world that we were commissioned to steward and to be as ambassadors and to make it more of a garden and to make it more peaceful and just and beautiful. And all of us in our own selfishness to have warred against God's designs, both for our lives and for the world. And we have turned this world into a raging dumpster fire against the king. Like we have warred against the king of kings. We have, we have ravaged his, his dominion. And here God is coming and saying, I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to make the first move. I'm willing to come to the farthest away to broker peace with those I've called, with those with whom I'm pleased. And so when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. In other words, this sign, what your baby looks like right now is no accident. This was a sign from God. He's going to die. And, you know, Mary knows that. I think Mary probably has pieced all this together from different interactions with Gabriel and, and looking at all the Old Testament about what his, her son is, is to endure. But now it's the weight of the most wonderful moment where you have this new baby and all the joy that comes with it. It's like, do you know why he looks that way, Mary? It's a sign of what he's born to do. Oof. And so she ponders these things in her heart is going to have to ponder them for 33 years. If I was married, I would do a lot of pondering. Oof. Can you imagine? I mean, just the faithfulness of this woman. She is so precious, so precious. And it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so that is where we, we're going to stop for today. But my hope is that you'll walk away from this, like looking at all the nativity scenes that we totally mess up and how we portray them. You know, we make them barns, we make them wicker baskets, we make them all these. No, the whole point of the way that God describes the nativity scene, it's a burial. Hmm. It really is. It's supposed to look like a burial because that's the sign. That's why we should rejoice that there was never a moment where Jesus came into the world where his death was a surprise. Mm. It was the purpose of his birth. And it was a gift of God to us that he would give his only son that whoever should believe in him should have everlasting life. And that's a beautiful thing. Do you have a favorite part when you look at this? I think, like you said, when you put it all together, because at first when you come to this story, you're like, man, the birth of Jesus should get more than 21 verses. Mm -hmm. But as you bake it out like we just did, you're like, oh, no, God has a full full idea of what's going on here. And he's planning it all and he's making it happen. He's showing us exactly what's going to take place. Yeah. Because I do love the fact that Caesar thinks he's doing his own thing, but God's really just using him to get <laughs> to make it all <laughs> it's happen. It's just awesome. I mean, all of this, it just it's so woven together. Like one of these details is not separated from the other. He is sovereign over Caesar. He's sovereign over the fact that Bethlehem is called the house of bread. He's sovereign over the fact that his son, when he goes to the cross and is going to die, 
compares that to some kind of a meal being served. This is my body that's being broken. This is my blood that's being poured out. And when he comes, he's laid in the the house of bread in a trough alongside these other animals that are also destined to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And he's, he's laid in this manger in the form of burial. Like all of this is so absolutely beautifully poetic and profound to see the sovereign hand of God that we should never take Christmas lightly because it was an incredibly costly gift from God to a people that he desperately loves. And so that is where we're going to to leave off today. We're going to, in our next episode, we're going to get into the wise men and uh, Jesus's early days. And that is really fascinating. And that too is going to point our eyes toward his ultimate purpose for why he came, which is to lay down his life for us. We have a good God, an incredible Savior, and I hope that you have a blessed Christmas season remembering that. God bless. Have a good week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.